I'd like to encourage you to just take out your outlines. We're in the final part of a series of entitled God's Plan Revealed. And this is the mystery today of God's glory. Many of you have probably never had a look at this. But the Bible says that God created everything for His glory. Everything in the universe was created for His glory. Hebrews 2.10, first verse on your outline, top of it. God is the one who made all things, and all things are for His glory. There's been nothing that has been made in the universe that God didn't make for His glory. That's what that says. Why? To reveal what He's like. Everything that He's made reveals something about what He's like. And you wanted to sh uh, have many children who would eventually, I'll put that word in, you'll see how I get there later on, share his glory eventually. Not on earth, when we get to heaven. So we've talked about this over the last two weeks, that God created everything because he wanted you in his family. And that family is going to last forever. He created the universe, which created the galaxies, which created the planet, so he could create you and have a place and a habitat for you to have a family. Now, here on earth, God does not share his glory with anyone. On earth, our job is to give him glory. Our lives, our very lives, are to be a living sacrifice to offer him and to live for his glory whilst we're on earth. In fact, the Westminster Confession starts with, the chief end of man is to what? Glorify God and enjoy Him. Enjoy Him forever. Because in Him, nothing will ultimately satisfy apart from the ultimate. Now, in contrast, the Bible says, when you and I get to heaven, if you're a Christian, we are going to share in God's glory which is an amazing thing that God would actually want to share some of that glory with us. And today I want to ask three questions. What is the glory of God? How does it reveal it? And most importantly, how does that mean to live for us? How do we live for God's glory? So firstly, what is the glory of God? We use this phrase all of the time, especially at Christmas time. Glory to God in the highest. You know, it's a final phrase in the Lord's Prayer, right? For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. What is the glory of God? Well, the glory of God is really all about who He is. It's about how He thinks. It's amazing how He thinks. It's how He feels. Why would He even feel that for us? And what He does. Whoa, He did all of this. He's amazing. So the glory of God is about who He is. His perfection, His utter perfection. Nothing else is perfect but God. That reveals a bit about His glory. It's in His perfection. It's revealed in His, and who He is in His personality. He's just, wow, this is our God. It's how He thinks. Think about planning. I've got enough problem trying to plan a renovation at my house. Imagine trying to lay out the whole universe and how everything should work. That is mind-boggling. It gives us a glimpse into the awesomeness of God's mind. His plan for the universe. Not only that, his plan for history. He put all that together. He knew ahead of time. It's how he feels, how he's so passionate. That reveals a bit of God's glory, his grace and his love, and what he does. 
I've often said, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I looked out my window and I saw Mount Wellington and said, honey, how do you fancy getting a wheelbarrow and moving Mount Wellington wheelbarrow by wheelbarrow? She says, I'm not up for that. I said, when God created the earth, can you imagine how much power that took? And that's just the earth, let alone the galaxy. And his promises reveal a bit of God's glory. So God's glory is simply who God is, and it's revealed through what he does. How has God revealed his glory? Well, last two weeks we saw that history is his story. In other words, that also reveals God's glory. It's what we do for this little slice, and it's a very little slice between Eden and eternity. That's what history is. Now, the story of God's glory. Number two, I'm going to go quickly through this part because I want to spend the majority of my time on the last section. How has God actually revealed his glory? Well, the Bible says over and over, for thousands of years, God has actually progressively revealed himself to us. Progressively. A little bit more each time. In fact, you know more than actually Moses did. You know more than that. Why? Because God has been revealing himself progressively over time. Hebrews 1.3 from the New York American Standard says, And he, Jesus is the radiance of his glory and is the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. So when God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, we start to even get a little bit of a glimpse of what God's like. And we see that in creation. We see God is a very creative God. To me, I'd have probably, maybe it'd have hung a few planets in our solar system. The rest of it, wow, is that extravagant or what? Incredible. We see that God is creative. He loves variety. Why do we know that? Because nothing's made the same. No two humans are the same. Not even down to snow. You'd think you'd have a standard issue snowflake, right? Why do we have to have variety in that? But... God, we also see from nature that God is incredibly powerful. Just our little piddly sun. Billions of atom bombs, you know. The power is phenomenal. We also know when we go down to a, uh, to a nanoscale that God is incredibly organized. And we're just starting to get a hand around what quantum is all about and quantum computing it is mind but We discover God's thoughts because he's already done it. Yes. Oh, you're getting a bit closer. Keep coming this way. As we learn more about what he's like. So we can see glimpses of his incredibly organized and brilliant nature and mind in nature. In fact, the Bible says this. He also, by the way, he also loves beauty. He loves beauty. Have you been stunned by a shot of nature which reflects the glory of God. Go read Romans 1. It tells you that kind of points to God. It hints. And the Bible says here, one of my favorite verses, the heavens detail, some verses say declare, the heavens tell the glory of God. The skies, the beautiful sunsets, the glorious sunrises. Not many of you have seen those, but a lot of you see sunsets. <laughs> The skies display his marvelous craftsmanship. Psalm 19, verse 1. So that's saying that everything in the universe brings glory to God except for one thing. Human beings. 
See, birds do all they do for the glory of God. They do birdie things for the glory of God, right? Flowers bring glory to God. By being doing what they're supposed to do as flowers, they fulfill. Listen carefully. How do they do that? By fulfilling the purpose that God created them for. And by the way, when you fulfill the purpose that God created for, then you bring glory to God. But there's an interesting thing. The only thing in the entire universe that actively rebels against the glory of God is human beings. See, God gave, one of his perfections that he gave us is a thing called choice. Free choice. Because he wants us to choose to love him. But sadly, we continue humans to misuse that gift. Therefore, we are lost. You've heard that phrase? We are lost. We are confused. We, like sheep, have wandered and gone astray. Secondly, God shows us a little glimpse of what he's like, not just in creation, but in Eden. When God created the world, he created a very special spot for the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And that was a place of perfection. Adam had a, a, a relationship with Eve, and they both had a relationship to God, a type of relationship that you and I don't have at this point in time. You see, because it wasn't marred by sin. It wasn't marred by suffering. It wasn't marred by sadness and sickness because at that exact juncture, which is wrong point number two, there was no sin, there was no sickness or suffering. So God had fellowship with Adam and Eve and they talked freely with him. Can you imagine that? The Bible actually says in the cooler day. I can imagine Adam walking around this strawberry patch. Hey, God, have you seen these? Look at these juicy ones. There was, so there was open conversation with God. They loved him and he loved them. And God's glory was seen in that perfection. The Bible says in Genesis 1, uh, 31, God saw all that he had made and it was indeed very good. A perfect God cannot make anything that's not perfect. That's something for some of you to think about. This was before sin messed everything up. And then we don't see God's glory again. Cook's tour here for about two and a half thousand years until Moses shows up and comes onto the scene in Exodus. I won't go all through the dramas of Exodus. Many of you know that well. But I'll just bring out a couple of points here. When God is bringing his people finally up out of Egypt, and they were there because of a famine, but now... They're growing very, um, very populous and they're moving out of Egypt. They get out across the Red Sea, big miracles are happening, and then the people started to grumble. And they started to doubt God. Why have you brought us into this desert? We're going to die. We're going to get starved to death. We're gonna, we're gonna, there's no water. What are you going to do? And they started to doubt God's goodness. And the Bible says, if you take a look at that in Exodus 16, 7, he was going to answer them, and he said, in the morning, you will see the glorious presence of the Lord, and that will settle your hearts and remind you that I am Jehovah Jireh, your provider. You'll see God's glory. Move along a little bit, just a little bit further, and you get to Moses. And he goes bolting up Mount Sinai, while those scallywags down the bottom are planning a bit of rebellion. But he goes up there anyway to get the Ten Commandments, right? This is where we are in the whole picture of history. We're about number three here. And we're about to go there, and next he goes up Mount Sinai, and then the glory of God 
is personally revealed to Moses. The Bible says this, Moses said, please God, I'd like to see your glory. Show me your glory. And God said, Moses, no one can stand to see my face directly and live. But my glory will pass by your cave and I'll cover it with my hand. Man, if he didn't, Moses' eyes would have been, he'd have been fried. He couldn't stand it like a nuclear blast. God is powerful. And then after I pass, I'll remove my hands so that you'll see my back. So Moses actually picks up, when he's up there, a little bit of the brilliance of God. And like a radioactive presence, he comes down and his face was what was it doing? It was glowing. <laughs> He'd been in the presence of Almighty God and he caught a very faint glimpse of the glory. And it set his face on fire almost. He was glowing. So they actually had to put a veil across it because it was freaking him out. Like, hey, uh, Moses, you look how little unusual. <laughs> right? You're looking a little bright there, Moses. Forty years later, I'm skipping a whole bunch here. They're in the wilderness and they wanted a place to worship. So they made a portable tent where was where we next see the glory of God show up, which was in the tabernacle. So at last Moses finished the work of building this tabernacle. A tabernacle is like a tent. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. And the tabernacle was filled with the awesome glory of God. And so that's the fifth place we see the glory of God in the Cook's tour history here. Now eventually, the Jews moved into the promised land. And they started to sort of bed down a little bit. And they're getting a little antsy and said, hey, Moses, we need a temple. And Moses said, why do you need a temple? He said, all my neighbors have got a temple. All the foreign gods, they've got temples. Everybody else, everybody else has got one. We want one. That's effectively what they were saying. And God says, no, nah, you don't need that. I don't dwell in buildings and stuff like that. You don't need a temple because guess what? I'm God. But anyway, eventually, David goes out and he raises the cash to build this thing. And it was a whopper. Never gets to build it, but Solomon does. So the next place God's glory shows up is in the temple. And the Bible says here in 1 Kings, as the priest came out of the inner sanctuary, a cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priest could not continue the work because the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. It was fearsome in the same way that you'd almost see some workers that are working in a foundry. Whoa, I can't get close to this. This is, this is hot. It wasn't necessarily hot, but it was a power in the presence which weighed heavy on them. So the glory of God is in the temple. For in Jerusalem for hundreds of years. By the way, you've heard about the, the Wailing Wall and the Western Wall, right? That is the retaining wall upon which the, that temple was originally built. So that's why it's quite precious to the Jews. It's the remnant of the original um, uh, retaining wall for, the, for, for this exact temple. Now finally, so it's going along well, but all of a sudden the inevitable starts to happen. The Jews start to fall away from God. And they start worshipping other things. Other things, let me say it another way, capture their heart, not God. Stuff. And all the other things that can capture our hearts. Foreign women 
And I don't mean foreign, foreign women. I mean women who, who worship other things. And finally, what happens is they start to worship idols and false gods, and they go on this big decline. Finally, moving forward a few books here, in the book of Ezekiel, the whole book's dedicated to this. God just says, you guys have given your hearts to other people. You're not loving me. I'm going to pull my presence because you guys don't mean business. You give me lip service, but you're not really loving me with all of your heart. So guess what God does? He pulls his glory. And there's a Hebrew word for that. Some of you may have heard it before. It's called Ichabod. Then, listen to this, for the next 400 years in the intertestamental, that's between the Old Testament and New Testament period, we don't hear anything about the glory of God, but then, as part of God's big plan, the Bible says at the right time he sent his son. And then the glory of God is revealed in Jesus, number seven. The word of God, the word became human. That's the word became human and lived among us. And we saw his, what's that word? We saw his glory. The glory that belongs to the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Notice both are there. Grace and truth. Now, if you ever want to know what God is like, if somebody says to you, hey, Mike, Mikey, what is God like? You can point straight to Jesus. Straight to him. If you want to know what he's like, take a long look at Jesus. If you're ever confused, then the glory moves on and moving a little farther into the church. The Bible says to God be the glory in the church. Not in the parachurch. In his church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Then, number nine, God's glory is going to permeate all of heaven. So we've gone from the creation, from Eden, all the way to eternity now. God's glory permeates all of heaven. That city, the Bible says, has no need of sun nor moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and Jesus is the light. The nations of the earth will walk in its light. Revelation 21 says, so in heaven, there is no need for sun or moon or electricity bills anymore, thank God, because the brilliance of God lights up the place, and you'll be glad to know, heats up the place. <laughs> the brightness of God, you see, because in him, there is no darkness at all, zero, no darkness, contrary to hell, where there is, there is no light there is no source of life and love. So, here's the good news. You are bound for glory if you're a Christian. You're headed for glory. And the Bible says that when you get there, you're actually going to start to review God's glory. But what about now? What if I said that God's glory wants to live within you? That's going to stretch your mind. It certainly shook mine. Where does God want to put his glory right now? It's in you, number 10. The glorious riches of this mystery, remember talking about this mystery, is that Christ in you is the hope of glory. What does that mean? It means that the moment you become a Christian, God seals you by his spirit as adopted into my family. Just like Helen and Tim have adopted hope 
into their family. She is theirs. They chose her. You see, you were created to enjoy God's love and express his love. How do I do that? And this is what I want to get to. I've said all of this to get to this. How do I live for God's glory, which is the chief end of man and enjoy him forever? The Bible says this is a good verse. This is a great verse. You're going to like this one, Martin. You too, Pat. Whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. (laughs) Pat and I were eating for the glory of God last night at Burger Burger. (laughs) It was great. So number three, how do I live? This is where the rubber is going to meet the road. This is what this whole message is about. How do I live for the glory of God? Some of you have asked that. We talked about God's plan now, how do I live? Five things that you can do to bring glory to God if you want to do this. And if you're a Christian, you should want to do this. Number one, and by the way, I put in a little acrostic. It starts with G-L-O-R-Y. First of all, give yourself completely to God. Not partially. Why am I worried about that? Why should you be worried about that? Because God talks about this thing called lukewarmness. And he says, if you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. So if you want to live for the glory of God, you are like a complete living sacrifice at his disposal. Now there's a word for that in the scriptures. It's called worship. When I live as a living sacrifice, that's an act of worship. The Bible says here, First Chronicles 16, give the Lord the glory that he deserves. Bring your offering and come worship him. Worship the Lord with all uh, in all his holy splendor. We forget that. We need to get a glimpse. Pray that God will give you a glimpse of the awesomeness of God. Just a glimpse will knock you sideways in the right direction. It will change you. Habits will drop off. Repetitive patterns of thinking will just fall away that have been pulling you down. A glimpse of the glory of God. Not pop psychology, the glory of God. It'll change you. See, worship involves singing and praying. It's giving, it's thinking, it's being quiet, it's offering, it's serving. There are all kinds of ways that you can worship God. But when you give yourself completely to God, that is an expression of your love for God, and that's called worship. Last week we looked at this, the most important verse. What is the most important verse that Jesus wanted us to focus on? He said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your strength. Jesus is saying, give yourself completely, not reservedly, not grudgingly, but joyfully. So here's a question. Would you like to be closer to God than you are right now? Because here's the really hard truth for everyone who's in this room. We are as close to God as we want to be. We cannot blame our spouses, our bosses, our kids. The Bible says in James 4, I haven't put that in your outline. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Are you taking any initiative in that? This week, did you do that? Or is that something that you should probably think about for next week? How do I get close to God? Many people see claim to know God. They claim to follow God and they claim to believe in God, but they don't feel close to him. This verse, if that's you, may help you. Psalm 25, 14. Friendship with God is reserved for those who reverence him. 
That means to give yourself completely to him. With them alone, he shares the secrets of his promises. There's something about intimacy there that's uh, found in reading his word and spending time in his presence that God reveals that you won't get around if you're rushing around and the first thing you do when you jump in that car in the morning is hit the radio. Or when you get out of bed, the first thing you do is check the Facebook or check your messages. It's reserved and he shares the secrets of his promises with those who reverence him. How do I get to know God real close? I give myself completely, my heart, soul, mind, strength. And that is called, what purpose is that called? Worship. That's worship. Secondly, I need to, G-L, this is glory, G-L, love and serve others compassionately. See, life is a lesson in love. Dead easy to love people when things are going crackerjack, right? But what about when things aren't going so good, so hot? God just says, I want you to learn other people. This is part of my plan for your life. And when you do, it'll give me glory. Learning to love God is called worship. Learning to love other people is called ministry. Everybody has a ministry. The Bible says this in 1 Peter 4. Are you called to help others? The implied answer, an obvious answer there is yes. God did not put you on earth to just live for yourself. He says, are you called to help others? Well, do it with all of your strength and energy that God supplies. In other words, let Jesus get inside of you and give you the energy and the desire to follow through. Don't just try and do it in your own effort. Then, notice in that last part, the important part of this verse, then God will be given the glory in everything through Jesus Christ. It's God that gets the glory, not me, not you. And last week we looked at the second command, which was equally important, love your neighbors yourself. God says, I made you to love me and to love other people. And the way you love other people is by helping them. Now listen closely on this. Your greatest ministry on this planet, your biggest help to other people will often come out of your greatest pain. Anybody want to give a testimony of that? Sitting in the row, whose name rhymes with Schmatrick Muckley. (laughs) The thing that you're most embarrassed about, the thing that really was stupid the thing that you're ashamed about God never wastes a hurt isn't that the truth Pat God says I will use that to help other people if you're humble if you're prideful nobody will gain from that who can better help a family that's dealing with an alcoholic than somebody who's had an alcoholic mum or an alcoholic brother God will take your pain. It's not something you want to shout from the rooftops, but you'll find people sitting around here that have had to deal with that. What about, who can better help somebody who's gone through the pain of a divorce? Our mum had. And she knew how to get with other people who were going through it. Because it's not something you get over, you go through it. So you help them. What about somebody who's been through the complete devastation of bankruptcy or a severe health scare within the gnat's whisker of your life. Now you don't want to be doing that and you know it's not something that you normally advertise, right? Hey! But I tell you what, for those people who are going through, there's nothing like somebody who's been through that journey to help you, to hold your hand as you go through that. 
You see, we live in a broken planet. Nothing works perfectly because of sin. No relationship, no body, not even their business works perfectly. But God can say, I can use that drama to good if you give it to me. So you give yourself to God completely, and Al, you love others and serve others compassionately out of love. And then this is a really important one. You obey God's word continually. Not when I feel like it. Jesus, again, is our model. John 17, 4. I brought you, the Father, glory. Excuse me, I brought you glory to you, the Father, here on earth, by doing everything you told me to do. Now, when a child does what a parent asks, hmm, that's very nice. That's my kid, right? <laughs> and obeying God's word continually brings God glory. Sometimes that's not easy. Because when God tells you something in his word and challenges your heart and he challenges my heart, what the Bible says to do and the Holy Spirit illuminates is not convenient many times. It is not necessarily popular. How about this one? Let me be real clear. No sex its outside a marriage, which is between one man and one woman. Not like this week in Ohio, many of you may have seen, they made it legal to marry three men. Check it out. It's going to get worse. We can have one gay, one trans, and whatever else you want. I think Facebook's got 52 different types of gender identities in Europe to choose from. They're very confused. They're lost. God made Adam and Eve. In the beginning, it was not so. And by the way, the Bible also says, in the end times, people will call what's right wrong, and what's wrong is right. So there'll be a day when I'll get in trouble for saying publicly from this pulpit that traditional marriage between one man and one woman is the norm and it's how it should be. And other forms are aberrations. That's not my idea. I'm just repeating what my father says. And his opinion is the only one that counts. Somehow I think we've lost our brains. If you make a decision... To say, God, I'm going to obey your word, even though culture says the exact opposite, and it will do increasingly so. And even though my friends say the exact opposite, everybody thinks I'm stupid for doing the opposite. But if you say, God, I'm going to do what you say anyway, I believe that you know, because you're really smart, far smarter than me, and far smarter than this changing world. You made me, you love me, you know what will satisfy my soul more than anything else, and you say these things for my benefit. God is not some sort of ogre in the sky saying, I want you to do this today because I'm capricious. He doesn't just make that up. Truth never changes. What is true a thousand years ago is still true today and will still be true in eternity. God says, I want to keep you from having a broken heart, broken body, a broken purpose, and be confused. Now, who knows more about you than your creator? Who cares more about you than your creator? Who knows what's best for you? Because he, he put you together. And there's a third way you bring glory to God, when you obey God's word continually. If you, obey, if you continue to obey my word, you're truly my disciples, the Bible says. And the third purpose of life, which will bring glory to God, is encapsulated in the word discipleship. So giving myself to God completely is worship. Loving others and serving others compassionately, that is ministry. 
obeying God's word continually, that is discipleship. Clearly three things. And then the Bible says, by the way, once you've got this, if you think you've got this, fantastic. The Bible says the next thing you need to do is right here. Teach others to obey everything I've commanded you. That's part of the peace plan. So you've got it down. Great. Now go teach others. That's what it says. Somebody once said that the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. That's what the Bible says. B-I-B-L-E. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Now, what happens when I get my advice and my directions for living out of the Bible? It will radically change your trajectory and your destiny. You can choose, which many people do these days, to sleep with people or not even bother to get married. That's not God's will. You have a choice. But if you choose that, you are not free to choose the consequences of that. I'll tell you what will happen if you follow the word of God. Your attitudes and values will become more like Christ, and this is the outcome. Your life will be exhibit holy living, holiness, something we don't hear about a lot these days. We become more and more like Jesus. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We reflect the Lord's glory as being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Ah, if you will reach out to unbelievers courteously. And this is the purpose of evangelism. Jesus said this, For the Son of Man came to sake and to save the lost. That's what he came for. It's probably instructive for you and I. That's what God calls us to do. He wants to tell us to tell everybody the good news. It's not bad news. It is good news. And this is called evangelism. Sharing the good news that your past can be forgiven. You can have a um, purpose for living. And you can have a home in heaven. He says, everybody out there is lost. See, because even, how about this one? I was talking to somebody this week on one of my conversations. Without God, how do you define right and wrong? What is the standard? Culture? Well, culture changes that all the time. So there's no objective standard for right and wrong. Without God, which is anchored in his character, which never changes, then you've got some objectivity. See, they're all confused. They don't know what they're here for. They've got no clue. What they think by what they do is I'm here to just get all the money I can, buy all the stuff I can, then eventually one day get sick of it all and give it all away or flog it all up or stick it in a dumpster. All this stuff, hoarding, that's what they think it is. And if I have the most toys, I win. No, you die. You're still going to die. And the Bible says, you fool. You fool. What am I here? Where am I going? They're lost. Now, on the same time, we are not called to debrate or attack or judge them as an enemy. They are not an enemy. They're just lost. Like somebody, hey, do you know where to go there? I sure do. Are you lost? Yes. Be nice. Just tell them the good news. Peter says this here, 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give an answer to anybody who asks you to explain the hope we have you in you. Have you had that conversation like that this week? Or was it a week with zero conversations and my head was in my desk? My head was in the job. My head was in my babies, which is fine. But there's going to be more than that. Always be prepared to give an answer for anybody who asks you to explain the hope with you. That's the good news. You need to be able to tell them what you believe and why you believe it. But when you do this, you need to do that with unbelievers, with gentleness and respect that's qualified. 
not berating people. So if you call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you must respect everybody. And you go, even people that vote differently from me? Yes. Who vote for the other party? Yes. How about people of other religions? Should I respect them? You bet. You bet you should. Doesn't mean to say you agree, but you should still treat them with respect. Here's a toughie. How about those with different lifestyles that you would not agree with at all? You don't like it and you don't agree with it. Should you still treat them with respect? Absolutely. Don't lose your wig and get all shirty with them as my dad. Oh, that's not bad. You know what I mean, Pat? That's what dad used to say. Don't get shirty. You know, just keep your cool and be respectful. The Bible says treat them with respect, but he does say share the good news. That's why we need to keep inviting. We need to reach out to the thousands of people that are in our area courteously because God wants everybody to know him. And as long as there's one person who doesn't know God in our area, doesn't know the love of Jesus Christ, doesn't know that they were made for a purpose and God has a plan for their life, we're going to keep reaching out. The Bible says this, 2 Corinthians 4.15. And God's grace brings more and more people to Christ. There will be great thanksgiving, and God will receive more and more glory. With people coming to Christ, God receives glory. With that in mind, I'm going to quickly wrap this part of this up, and I want you to take a look at a very haunting scene and think, what does this mean to us? Check this out. Bible says to use our worldly wealth to win friends for the kingdom, not to sit on it and not to hoard it. Because what we're talking about here has eternal impact. Father, I pray somehow your spirit would reach into our hearts, set our priorities right, help us see clearly, not as men and women who are lost, but those who see clearly your purposes. Finally, God wants us to be yoked with other believers closely. That's the why. The Bible yoked mean, word yoked means to be teamed up with. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Paul calls other believer yoke fellows, which means, the, teaming up means that purpose of fellowship. God says, let us not give up the habit of meeting together, but instead encourage one another. That can be done in a small group. And when you do that, you give glory to God for your obedience to the gospel of Christ. For the generosity of your fellowship towards them all. Now for some of you today, as we close this message, some of these points may sound a little familiar. Because they're exactly the same sermon I preached last week. Just different words. We need to hear things multiple times until we start to work on them in our lives. New ways to communicate old truths. And here they are. 
before I pray, I'm going to pray straight out to this. Friends, God wants you to give yourself to God completely. The Bible calls it worship. That's to know and love Him. God wants you to love and serve others compassionately. That's ministry. He wants you to serve Him. He wants you to obey His word continually. That's discipleship. He wants you to grow in Him, grow in the knowledge and the grace. He wants you to reach out to unbelievers courteously. Share the good news. Share Him. And then He wants you to yoke up with other believers closely. That's the fellowship. He wants you to love His family. God doesn't want orphans. He wants members of His family. Now when you live that and you do that, you are living for God's glory. The only question is, whose purpose and glory are you going to live for? Yours or God's? Let's pray. Would you pray this prayer? Would you say in your heart, dear God, once again, I find myself wanting to commit myself to the things that matter most in this life to you. I certainly don't want to waste my life on things that are not going to count. So I recommit myself today, or maybe for the very first time, to these five purposes for my life. This week, I want to give myself to you completely. I want to get to know you. I want to lovingly serve others compassionately, not with resentment or bitterness or with a twang. I want to give my life away and even use the pain in my life to help others. Soften me, Lord. I want to obey your word continually and to become more like you. To not listen to what the world says, but to do what your word says. Holy Spirit, would you help me reach out in love to unbelievers courteously and to treat everybody with gentleness and respect. And Father, I want to honor your family and be yoked together with other believers closely to be with a fellowship and encouragement that I will need to make it strong in this world. Today, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I invite you to open it up. You may just say in your mind, I don't understand it all. I understand that. But would you forgive my sin? You know that you have fallen short of even your own expectations, let alone God's. Help me to accept, Lord, your sacrifice that you made in that cross and to live for you. Accept me into your family, I pray, in your powerful name. Amen.